Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast for Real Life Church Pullman. We exist to help people know and become like Jesus. We're back in uh, Exodus in Moses. Uh, We left off last week where Moses was about to go confront Pharaoh with Aaron. And, And, you know, it's a story we're kind of familiar with, but if you stop and think about it, you know, you, you kind of know what, what's coming. Moses is going to go, and God already told him Moses isn't going to do anything, uh, going to respond. But they go, you know, they tell Moses, let my people go. No. Plague. Okay, I'll let them go. No. Plague. I mean, it's, there's this drama that just is kind of crazy. Think about why, why go through all that? Why all that drama, especially in light of the fact that God already knew Pharaoh wasn't going to respond. He said in Exodus 3, way back, when he's first talking to Moses, he said, but I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go. No, not even by a mighty hand. Uh, so again, why, why all the drama? Uh, well, I would suggest if his goal, if God's only goal was to bring the Israelites out of slavery, he wouldn't have gone through all that. He would have simply gone, maybe killed off the Egyptians, or at least the royal group, the people at top, the leaders, and Israel could have walked out. Or maybe, okay, I won't kill them all. Maybe I'll paralyze everybody for like a week. That'll give us enough time to take off. He could have given everyone their own personalized, maybe monogrammed carpet, uh, flying carpet. And here, at this time, we're all going to gear up and fly out to the promised land. could have done anything. It's God. So why did he engage this way? Well, I would say if his goal was more than just that, maybe his goal involved, I want to reveal who I am. Uh, Again, that was one of the threads we've talked about as we walk through this grand good narrative, divine narrative, is God's constantly revealing himself to a world that doesn't know who he is. And here we have Egypt, a land that doesn't know who God is. This is what uh, God says again. In uh, Exodus 7, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the children of Israel from among them. Uh, He's declaring, this is why I'm doing this. I'm doing this so that both the Egyptians and the Hebrew nation will know who I am, what kind of God I am, that I'm a relational uh, God. Uh, So that's the setup. Uh, Very interesting. So then uh, what's at stake here? What's, what's the issue? Why this tay-to-tay, if you will, this showdown? Well, what's at stake is two divergently different worldviews. One, in the land of Egypt and really the rest of the world, is this polytheism, is the idea that, that there are many gods. Uh, the Hebrew word is El, which just simply means power, force, a god. I mean, uh, giving something special to a force of nature, and uh, they're usually named. Uh, They are at odds with one another uh, in the polytheistic world. Uh, They have uncontrolled, undirected power. It's like a hurricane. You know, it's like it just kind of randomly and goes wherever. And uh, that's kind of the nature of what and who, if you will, they worshipped. That was their system. Uh, You can't know these gods they're gods to be feared. They're gods that are seemingly constantly angry. You've got to sacrifice to them. You've got to appease them. You try to win favor with them. That's how you related to the spiritual world. 
So that's the world that Moses is going to confront with a different system, a monotheistic, monotheism system where there is one God. And in Hebrew, the word is Elohim, like El, but Elohim, which means the God, the creator, the power. It's like above all of these other things. Not a created thing, but the creator. Uh, And this is a God that uh, you can know. This is a God who has directed and controlled power. Power is definitely an attribute of God, but it's not his identity. Uh, it's just one of the things that God is about is, is uh, directed and controlled power. You can't barter with this God. He has no needs. You don't need to give him food as an offering like, oh, thank you, I was hungry. Uh, God has no needs. And in fact, you're going to see as we go on that sacrifice now has a whole different context. Sacrifice was trying to win favor or appease a God or keep them from being angry. Uh, Now, sacrifice will be a a show of gratitude. Uh, Sacrifice will be something you do to worship the God. Uh, It's a relational God. It's a personal God. It is radically different uh, from anything the world had seen before. That's what this showdown is about. That's what's at stake. Uh, Well... It start. Oh, I'll say this. I read a book uh, a couple of years ago, and I re- rewrote it. I rewrote it. I didn't plagiarize it. I just reread it. Uh, reread it, kind of preparing for this because it was a very uh, entertaining book. It's a, it's an author that I've loved. I've read a few of his books. It's called uh, "The Exodus You Almost Passed Over," which is a great title. And uh, and he's not a Christian guy. He's a Jewish rabbi. His name's Rabbi David Foreman. And he writes a companion to Genesis and Exodus, and he wrote this book. And I loved what he said in there. Uh, even though he's not a, a Christian, he has such incredible insight into God's character and nature and brings stories of the Old Testament to life. And it's uh, really been entertaining and uh, learned a lot from this guy. But here's one thing he said in his book. The idea that a human being ought to actually feel love. Thank you. Uh, feel love toward the divine is perhaps the greatest innovation of monotheism. So monotheism is introducing this idea that human beings can now love their creator. They can have a relationship. Uh, that is the radical good news. I mean, that's part of our gospel, is God is not a God far off that you have to win his favor, you have to do the right things, but he's a God who wants to know us. Uh, and that's the God that, uh, that Moses wants to reveal uh, to Pharaoh. So it starts out with two different appeals. Uh, the first one, which we're kind of familiar with, and the second one, which I wasn't very familiar with. But here's the first one we all kind of know the gist of. It said, Afterwards, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says Let my people go, that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord? that I should obey him and let Israel go. I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. Well, uh, this is the first introduction to this new God, but look how he does it. Let my people go, not just let the Hebrews go. Let my people go. Why? So they can celebrate with me. (laughs) He's a God of celebration. He wants to have a relationship and I want my people to come celebrate with me. This is a relationship that I plan on having. Uh, and Moses, or excuse me, Pharaoh is 
a little confounded. I don't have any idea what you're talking about. This makes no sense to me. No frame of reference to my world. I don't know this Lord that you speak of, and I won't let your people go. Okay, great. But then the very next verse, they have a second appeal, which seems totally out of character. I don't know if it's because maybe it's just Moses and Aaron acting on their own, or maybe God directed them to say this, but it didn't say that before. Uh, But here's what it says. Then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord, or he may strike us with plagues or with the sword. (laughs) That's kind of the very opposite appeal. It's like, let these, the God of the Hebrews met with us. Let us go and sacrifice lest he strike us down or hit us with disease or kill us. Well, that's a God system that Pharaoh could relate to. And he kind of, and remember, Pharaoh is a God in this culture too. He, he sees himself as a God and the culture sees him as a God in human form. And he's got power of his own. So now he's kind of saying, oh, okay, that's what your God's like? Ah, well, no, they're going to fear me even more. He starts to puff his chest out, say, no, that God I can relate to. No, I'm I'm not going to let him go. In fact, they're going to fear me even more. They're going to make bricks now, but without any straw. See how they like that. If they have so much idle time, they can think about this new God. Uh, Let them think while they're trying to make more bricks or make the same number of bricks without any straw. Uh, Well, that didn't go well. Uh, the Israelites are obviously upset. The elders come to Moses and Aaron and go, what have you done? They said, you told us God was going to deliver us, and now things are worse than they were. We'd have been better off without you even coming. Uh, well, they're frustrated. Moses is obviously frustrated. He goes to God, cries out, what's going on? Why are you doing this? And here's what God says to tell him. He's re-upping. It's almost like he did that second appeal just to set the stage for this showdown. But this is what he says. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from the slaves, from being slaves to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as, uh, I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will bring you to the land that I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. You know, he's just trying to make it clear again. This is, this is what I'm going to do. Trust me on this one. Uh, a lot of times in our lives, God kind of tells us what he's going to do and then things get worse. And it's like, what... <laughs> Not what I had planned. What, I was better off before. Maybe you felt that way sometimes. Why did this happen? And I think God is saying, you know, I will make myself known in this situation. You will know me more. You will believe who I am. Trust me. Um, so that sets up uh, the showdown. Well, the first encounter of the rod kind, uh, before we get to the plagues, Moses and Aaron come before Pharaoh, and they did their little magic act that God had told them about before, and uh, Moses takes the staff, throws it on the ground, becomes a snake, and uh, Pharaoh looks at his magicians and says, uh, okay, can you do that? And they could. They took their staffs, threw it on the ground, and became snakes. And first thing you have to realize, it's another good lesson to us, because sometimes we think God is the only power out there. 
Um, but we live in a world where there's different powers at work. Uh, the magicians could do their thing, but nowhere near what God could do. It's limited. Uh, but we need to be aware that there is another power at work around us. Uh, and we need to know that God has a, a, a better power. Well, so just to emphasize that, uh, the difference was Aaron's staff ate up all the other snakes and uh, got it back as a staff, probably this thick at this point. <laughs> Okay, there you go. Just trying to show dominance. Okay, yeah, you got your power, but it's limited, and it's not much compared to what I can do. Uh, so that was the first thing. But they matched it. Um, well, then Pharaoh says, no, I'm not going to respond. I'm not going to let you go. Uh, I can do what you can do. My dad's better than your dad, whatever <laughs> contest they're having here. Well, then the showdown takes place. Now it's the plagues, which we've read or heard before. Um, and these are, one thing to keep in mind is these, almost every one of them relates to a God of their culture that God is showing dominance over. God is sh- showing that he has control over. First one is uh, Moses strikes the Nile River, which is one of their main gods of the Nile, and the, turns to blood. And the uh, fish in the water all die. And it's not just the Nile. Every pond and stream and even water in a pitcher in a household will turn to blood. Every source of water is now contaminated, they can't drink it. So the people have to go and, and dig wells of their own to get water to drink. And that's one of the things, I don't know, it doesn't really say how long these things last. It could have been a month, I don't know. How long did they have to go dig for their own water? We kind of think of them like the movie. It's like the next day we had this plague, the next day. But some of these things may take some time. Just keep that in, in mind. Well, <clears throat> calls Moses and Aaron in. And uh, again, looks at his magicians, and they could turn the water into blood. And so Moses hardens his heart and won't let them go. So that's, uh, that's number one. Number two, strikes the uh, ground, or strikes the Nile again, and this time frogs come out everywhere. Frogs infesting every home, and they're just innumerable all over. And uh, this lasts for a while until finally, again, Nicole... Moses and Aaron in and say, get rid of these frogs and I'll let your people go. And Moses says this. This is great. Uh, where is it? <clears throat> oh, Moses said to Pharaoh, I leave to you the honor of setting the time for me to pray for you and your officials and your people uh, that you and your houses may be rid of the frogs except for those that remain in the Nile. Pharaoh said, Tomorrow. <laughs> Moses replied, it will be as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. Well, there's a new feature here. God is a God of control and precision. Hey, just name the time and I'll pray and God will take it away that time. I'll let you have the honor of setting the time. (laughs) I love that. Okay, tomorrow noon. Again, okay. And then he hardens his heart, won't let them go. Uh, (laughs) Keep going. So then number three, the lice. Uh, lice are not fun animals. Uh, but he strikes the land, strikes the dust of the land, and all the dust becomes lice. I mean, Egypt is really just dust and sand. So I can't imagine how many lice, but they're just all over. And uh, again, uh, the magicians come in at this one. They can't come near this one. In fact, they say, this is the finger of God. 
And what do they mean by that? It means none of our gods could do this. This is beyond anything. Because what's happening? He's turning dust into animal life. Do we know where that came from? Yeah, that was creation. God created every animal from the dust. Only God, the creator, could do that. No other force can do that. Um, so that's, he's revealing more of himself. Uh, again, pray for relief. Lice are gone. Moses hardens his heart. Uh, so, number four, flies. Infestation. This time it changes focus again to God show what he's like. Flies come everywhere in Egypt only. Only on the Egyptians. From here on out, the Israelites are spared from the plagues. But flies are everywhere. I don't know if you've been uh, inundated by flies before. There was one time I did, and it is miserable. I was on a mountain hiking trip, and you go up into the snow line, you're coming back down into the tree line. Well, right at that layer between the tree and the snow, there's like swarms of flies, uh, and they're biters. And it's like, seriously? You can't walk two steps, and you're just, they're all over. And uh, we had to get little mosquito nets covering our heads just to walk for the next two hours. We had a meal during that time. We had to kind of... I mean, they were horrible. So I can relate to that one. I can't relate to too many of these, but I just thought I'd throw that in there. Well, again, God is controlled, personal. Now he's exempting the Hebrews. This is not just a general plague. This is directed to you and you only. Well, again... Get rid of these flies. So they do. And he says, no, I'll not let you go. And he hardens his heart. Number five, livestock. This time he strikes the ground and there's a pestilence throughout the land on, again, only the Egyptians, but all their livestock that's out in the fields are struck with a a pestilence and die. And the officials come and tell Pharaoh what's happened. And here's the first thing he says. Not how bad is it? Anybody spared? He goes, tell me if there's any... Livestock from the Goshen that are struck. Any of the Hebrews that lost any cattle. And they come back and know just ours. <laughs> and, uh, they're God revealing himself again. Well, that didn't work. Prayed for relief. Pestilence gone. No, I won't let him go. He hardens his heart again. <laughs> then number six, boils. Uh, I probably don't need to describe that one. That, that can't be good. Uh, uh, especially if it's multiple. They took ashes this time and just kind of threw it in the air. And again, boils broke out on every animal, human, throughout the land. And even the magicians were so overcome, they couldn't even come into Pharaoh's court uh, and face uh, Moses and Aaron. Uh, and then it says this, when Moses and Aaron came back in, and it said... Uh, But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said to Moses. Well, here's a radical turn. It says, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. I don't know about you, but that kind of goes against a little bit of what I think. Wasn't that unfair? I mean, if Pharaoh doesn't have a choice, is he just a pawn? Does God violate his free will by hardening his heart? I don't think so. I think there's a couple ways to look at that, that you can make it fit this scenario. One is... Well, certainly God could. God is God. He could harden. He could use Pharaoh any way he wants to. But I think two other ways that you could look at this. One is if God already knows Pharaoh's heart. He's already said from the very beginning, he's not going to respond. This is his heart. It's hard. 
and God could kind of play into that. And there's a Hebrew word in here that could also be interpreted strengthened. Strengthens his heart. It's kind of like he wants him in the fight. He wants him to continue to make a stand so that God can make his statement. Uh, But either way, uh, the, the analogy I like best is if you had a lump of wax, say a wax candle, and you put it on this table, and you put a lump of clay on this table, and you had a pretty high heat source shining on both of them. What's going to happen? Well, the candle will melt. What's going to happen to the clay? It'll harden. So you could say that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, but it really was the condition of his heart that determined what happened. Because if he had a soft heart, it would have melted. God could have easily said he melted his heart. He humbled him. Uh, But that didn't happen. So instead, uh, I like that analogy because it kind of gives us a little lesson too that when we hear from God, when God's trying to speak to us, the condition of our heart determines how we'll respond. Uh, God doesn't force us to do things, but God could harden my heart in that sense if my heart is already prone to be hard. If I'm prideful, I want to do things my way, I want to make my own calls, and God's asking to do something, I could harden my heart. Uh, you could say God drawing me out could harden my heart, but he's not eliminating my free choice. Well, so there's that episode number six. Um, he hardens his heart, and uh, he doesn't let him go. Then the next thing, before they even come back, this is uh, Exodus nine fourteen, changes tactics again. For at this time I will send all my plagues to your very heart, and on your servants and on your people, that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. Now, if I had stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, then you would have been cut off from the earth. If I would have killed you all, kind of the first option I gave, let me just kill them all. He said, if I've done that, uh, but indeed for this purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. As yet you exalt yourself against my people, in that you will not let them go. So here God's again reaffirming, this is why I'm doing this, to make my name known. Even your reaction only makes my name more known. I will do even greater things to declare who I am. Uh, So, and they say, well, hail is the next one, number seven. And uh, this is not like a normal hailstorm. We've all kind of been through a hailstorm. Some in Texas are really like, thank you very little. Uh, Big. They do lots of damage to cars. Well, this is, this is knocking down trees and killing animals in the fields. And what's unique about this hail is it's mixed with fire and ice. That's a trick. So I don't know if it's exploding when it hits the ground. or. But why? Why did God do that? Well, because remember what I said in polytheistic culture? Gods would never team up. They're always at odds with each other. Here God's saying, I can take fire and ice and make them work together to do this. And they would know that. They would see that right away and go, oh my gosh, this is a God that we can't relate to. This is a God far greater than anything we've known. Um, well, it wipes out most of their livestock, which is their food source, and uh, that's not good. So they call them in, and this time, this is, this is the new response. Uh, remember he said, now I'm going to put my plagues to your heart. Well, here's his heart response. Therefore, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron. This time I have sinned, he said to them. The Lord is in the right. I and my people are in the wrong. Now you might think, oh, good. 
He now knows that he's sinned. He's going to certainly respond now, but he doesn't. Hardens his heart. Uh, knowing that you're... Now he knows who God is. Now he knows what he's doing. He's choosing to rebel against God and said, no, I, I know who you are. I'm still going to resist. Uh, again, a great lesson to us that just because you know, people know we're sinners, you know, we know we're opposed to God, we still have a choice. Are we going to continue to choose to live that way or are we going to choose to respond? Uh, again, it might depend on the condition of our heart. Well, uh, it said this in 927. Uh, oops, nope, we already read that one. Uh, at that time, then he gave the, the warning against the next plague, which were locusts, before they even left, after he said, no, I'm not going to let them go. Well, if you don't let them go, we're going to send locusts into the land, and they're going to literally take the rest of the food source out. Uh, it was interesting because it named when the hail came, it knocked down all the grain that was in the field that was the early crops, like barley. And, sorry, farmers, I don't remember what the early crops are. Barley, flax, something. Wheat's still coming up. Uh, the later crops, uh, the locusts will take care of all that. Uh, they're going to be decimated. Uh, their whole food source is gone. Uh, but he still wouldn't let them go. At this time, the servants, as Moses and Aaron walk out, the servants come to Pharaoh and go, don't you know we're, we're dead? We've failed. We can't compete with this. This is, the, again, the finger of God. This is a God we don't even know. Give in. And Pharaoh says no. Uh, but they run after Pharaoh, uh, Moses and Aaron, bring them back in, hoping that Pharaoh will finally give in. And Pharaoh says, okay, I'll let you go. Who, who's going? I'll let you take the men only. And Moses said, no, 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 no. We go now, we go with men, women, children, and our livestock. And Pharaoh says, no, I can't do that. Can't let that happen. So the locusts come and, and do just what they feared it would do. Just decimated the rest of their food source. They come back in, and again he says, I have sinned again. And the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. He would not let them go. So now we're up to nine. Number nine is darkness, which I kind of feel like, well, just wait till the sun goes down. That's not quite the same. This is not even the absence of light. This is the presence of darkness, which I can't even relate to. This is darkness only on the Egyptians. The Hebrews are fine. It's light where they are. So it's not some heavenly you know, eclipse or something. This is oppressive, personal darkness. They can't function. They can't move. They can't do anything. They're enveloped by darkness. And that's pretty scary. And uh, <laughs> they come back in. He goes, okay, okay, okay. I give in. You can go. Just leave us the livestock. That's their only food source left. <laughs> and Moses at this time, and now he's kind of enjoying this, I think. <laughs> well, you know, we, uh, we really can't. We've got to take the livestock because we don't know how many livestock are necessary for sacrificing to our God. So we're going to have to take all the livestock. And uh, Moses or Pharaoh responds this way, get out of my sight. Make sure you do not appear before me again. The day you see my face, you will die. Just as you say, Moses replied, I will never appear to you again. That ends kind of their face-to-face showdown between uh, the plagues, but there's still one more to come. Now the last thing is going to be the firstborn. And again, why this firstborn thing? Well, remember God mentioned this to Moses, and it doesn't say when he said this to Pharaoh here, but this is what it says back in Exodus 4. 
this is what he's telling him he's going to say to Pharaoh when he gets there. Say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son, and I told you, let my son go so that he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. <laughs> kind of crazy talk. Again, put yourself in Pharaoh's shoes. What's he talking about? We have to ask, what's this obsession God has with firstborn? We've talked about it almost every week the last month and a half, two months. There's, you know, uh, Jacob winning his right as a firstborn or, win- or stealing the firstborn's rights. You have double portion for Joseph. All this talk of firstborn. Why, why is God so obsessed with firstborn? They get double portion. They're, they're special to God. Well, I thought all God's children were the same. But there's something about the firstborn. And this is going to be the point of, that finally releases them from, from Egypt, is this idea of firstborn. Now he's calling Israel his firstborn. That this nation will be the firstborn of all the nations. But here's, I think, the reason. He's foreshadowing what firstborn means to God. Colossians 1.15 to 18 says this. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. So this is why God's obsessed with firstborn, because he's referring to his own son, his co-equal. It's not mean, did not mean that Jesus was created or Jesus only existed because he was born 2,000 years ago, because with Second sentence in here. For in him all things were created. He was with God from the beginning. He is God. Uh, but he also has that, that title of being firstborn because he's God's son, became one of us 2,000 years ago. That's his firstborn. That's why he's obsessed with firstborn. That's what he's demonstrating with Israel. Israel will represent what the firstborn is all about. Um, so Moses... Aaron declare this to the court area, the officials that are there, uh, Egyptians that are around, and they are terrified. Uh, they start giving them, <laughs> they don't even have to ask, they're giving them their jewelry and their gold and silver and, and pleading with them to leave them. Because Pharaoh has resisted, but the people are definitely seeing what, who God is and what he's about, and they don't want to deal with it. Well, <laughs> Moses <coughs> declares this, all these officials of yours will come to me, bowing down before me and saying, go, you and all the people who follow you. After that, we will leave. <laughs> I love that. It's like before we had to come and ask you to let my people go. Now you're going to beg us to leave. You're going to demand that we leave. That's the God we serve. So then we have a Passover instituted. And this is the first plague or the first situation where it requires response to be applied, uh, to be spared. Uh, before, he just didn't have the plagues affect the Hebrews. Now he says, now you have to respond. So he gives them instruction for this Passover meal. Take a lamb, each household, kill it, uh, slit its throat, bleed it out, take the blood, and put it on the doorpost 
and the lintel of the door. Now, to them, it's like, well, that's kind of weird, kind of strange, uh, but okay. Um, we look back on that and think, God is amazing. God is foreshadowing 1,200 years later uh, that blood will be applied to the wood that forms the shape of a cross. That's what they were doing uh, that night. That's what's going to spare them from destruction. Uh, well, 11.23 says, or 12.23 says this, When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and sides of the doorframe. He will pass over that doorway. He will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses or strike you down. Uh, I think God is demonstrating to us what's to come. Uh, I love that image. Well, it happens, just the way it said, at midnight, angel uh, comes through the, the land in every household. And by the way, it's not just humans, it was animals, firstborn of everything was dead, including Pharaoh's son. And uh, Pharaoh's decimated, the people are fearful and uh, panicking, and they do just that. They beg them to leave. You may go, please leave us. Uh, no conditions, just get out of here. And it says, the first time it gives a number here, 600,000 men. Don't know if that's a literal number, but it's probably, could be true. 600,000 men. You add women and children, it's at least 2 million people. You can see why maybe Egypt was a little fearful of this rising nation. But maybe 2 million people. Uh, and they march out with all this plunder. And they've got their livestock, they've got food source. Um, and... They get how far? I don't know. I'm just going to throw this in here. I think they're probably three days out. Why? Because that's what they kept telling Pharaoh. We want to go three days into the desert to worship our God. Uh, So I'm guessing they're like three days out. And again, it says God hardens Pharaoh's heart. And he says, what have we done? We've lost all of our slave labor and we've lost all our food. Uh, So they get all the chariots, all their army together and pursue them. Well, here they're. Israelites are up against the Red Sea. Here comes this horde of Egyptians, and now they're, they're panicking. Uh, this is a common theme the rest of the Old Testament. It's like, what have you done? At least we were alive before. Now we're going to be destroyed here. We've got nowhere to go. And uh, Moses turns to them and says this. Moses answered the people, Do not be afraid. Stand firm. You will see the deliverance of the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You only need to be still. That's a great word for us, isn't it? Again, God has delivered us if we've responded to him, and yet still things happen. Still things happen going, gosh, this is not what I signed up for. Be still. Trust the same God will deliver you just as he delivered them. That's his promise. Why? Because he wants to be make himself known, manifest. He wants the world to see what kind of a God we follow. Uh, Well, then a great thing happens. It's my favorite part of the story because God directs the angel, the cloud that's in front of the Israelites that led them to the Red Sea. He says, I want you to go to the back of the the, uh, the column. So the cloud forms between the oncoming Egyptians and the Israelites. It's not an ordinary cloud. It's a cloud that on the Egyptian side is darkness, kind of like the ninth plague. It's oppressive darkness. And on the Israelite side is light. Everything's normal. But it's enough of a barrier that the Egyptians can't 
function beyond that darkness and they're kept at bay separating light from dark and then Moses strikes the sea and the water separates from water and the dry land appears and they walk out does that sound like anything else does it sound like creation where God separated light from dark he separated water from water and he go forth multiply and it's a beautiful image and now he's creating a nation the birth of a nation literally where they walk through the Red Sea and uh, reach the other side the cloud is removed the Egyptians think they can still pursue them and pursued to the middle of the Red Sea till they're engulfed and destroyed. Um, that is the story. That's where we're going to end today. But just know the rest of the Old Testament is about God using now this new nation to make himself known to the nations around them that put God on display. Uh, that's the purpose of forming this nation. Not just for their sake, but they're a representation. God wants them to represent God to the world, just as God wants us to represent him. We're his firstborn, <laughs> in that sense, uh, if we trust in Jesus. Thanks for checking out this message from Real Life. You can find out more about us by going to rlcpullman.com or by following us on Facebook or YouTube. Until next time, have a great week.